Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It's such a joy to be with you, to open the Word of God this morning and to share. And we're going to obviously be continuing in our study of First Thessalonians. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please turn there to chapter 2, First Thessalonians chapter 2. We have, a, I believe, a rich feast before us this morning as we consider what it looks like to really live a life of consecrated service unto God. I would, I guess, give this message a title, uh, The Character of Consecrated Service. We're going to be looking at that this morning in detail as Paul outlines for us, as he does frequently in the New Testament in his letters to the church, defending and commending his ministry to them against the outside and at times internal attacks of people calling him a fraud, calling his ministry suspect, calling his ministry um, not genuine, not authentic. And perhaps if you've been serving the Lord for quite some time, you have surely experienced uh, those outside voices. And if not that, you have unequivocally experienced the internal voice of the enemy calling you fraudulent, calling you a fake, calling your ministry and your service to the Lord mere vanity. And if that might be you this morning, I pray this word encourages you, bolsters you, calls you higher. So with that in view, as you've turned to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's pray. We'll ask for the Lord's help over our time. So Father God, we just thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for the joy of praise, the joy of community, the privilege of being together in freedom. Thank you for the high honor of opening the Bible because it's the Word of God, having our hearts and our minds renewed, our hearts cleansed, realigned, repositioned, and redeployed for your glory. We ask that you would have your unhindered way in our midst by the power and anointing of your Spirit. Be with me as I bring forth your Word. Be with us as we receive your Word. Let it all be done for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. First Thessalonians chapter 2. We're reminded last week as Ben introduced the whole letter to us and really got us going in this study of the, the letter of Paul to the Thessalonians of how Paul came to Thessalonica, of course, as a missionary. And as Paul did in all the churches he planted, he came there with a missionary mindset, with a heart to reach a people for the gospel. And we, of course, looked at that last week, how Paul was giving thanks uh, to God for these believers uh, and how they uh, received the word of God from Paul. They received the gospel. They had their lives changed to such a degree that they turned, he says in verse 9, from idols to serve the living and true God. And Ben pointed out last week, uh, if you were here, that there was a plethora of idols in gods, false gods, in Thessalonica, as there were in many of the ancient cities of Paul's day. And rampant uh, use of sexual immorality and fornication and abuses of all kinds under that banner that were even uh, often in the name of religion. The practice of immorality was deep in Thessalonica, as it was in many cities that Paul went to, but particularly so. He's going to devote a large part of chapter 4 in addressing that. Uh, but Paul came to this city under difficult circumstances. You know, Paul didn't find Thessalonica uh, via a postcard and say, hey, that's a good idea. Let's go there. Paul uh, was actually trying to go into Asia, if you recall from Acts, and the Lord prevented Paul from doing that uh, and ended up redirecting Paul's steps. And Paul received a, a vision in the night from a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. So Paul concluded with Timothy and Silas that that was where the Lord was directing and proceeded to push forward into Macedonia, which was an unreached area, with the gospel and arrived in Thessalonica. But not before, if we know our Bibles, going through Philippi. Now Philippi was an interesting experience for Paul. It was not a pleasant one. It was certainly a spot that God did great things uh, planted a church there. We have the letter of uh, the Philippians, which is an unbelievable letter that Paul writes. Um, but in Thessalonica, Paul was 
imprisoned and beaten with rods. Now we sort of, as people of the word, sometimes glance over the fact that that would be a rather traumatic experience, be beaten with rods. Now some of you, I'm sure, uh, just taking a wild guess, have probably been beaten up. Maybe a couple of you. Maybe you've beaten someone else up, uh, hopefully before Christ. Uh, but in any event, if, if you've done it after Christ, come see us for counseling. But, uh, but Paul has been beaten with rods. So this is a vicious, violent, bloodying of the human body. Now, Paul had this done to him three times. Uh, and in Philippi, he had it done to him and Silas, and they were thrown into the jail, as you know, fastened their feet in the stocks, which literally means they were stretched out to the maximum capacity without getting put out of joint, and left there for the night. God, of course, delivers them. But Paul comes to Thessalonica after this beating. So Paul is not exactly physically in great condition. Uh, And it was quite a journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. I think it's somewhere around 100 miles that he had to walk, of course, to get there. And Paul comes to this city of about two to 300,000 people at his day with a broken, bloodied, hurting body but embodying in his body the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And I don't want us to lose sight of this because this is an important context for what Paul is about to share with them in chapter 2. Paul did not come to the Thessalonians really um, without great affliction to himself personally. And I see in chapter 2 eight characteristics that are going to define Paul's ministry across the board that are highlighted particularly in this chapter that I think hopefully will benefit us. And the first characteristic of Paul's ministry is his agony. Paul had real agony in the ministry. Now, if you've just started to serve the Lord in any capacity, um, agony is not the first thing that you think about as uh, the reason why you want to serve Jesus. Uh, I remember when I was a kid and I wanted to serve Jesus, agony was not on the radar. Uh, for a lot of reasons. But as I've grown in walking with the Lord, uh, agony is a needed and serious qualification of the ministry. If we have no agony in the ministry, we might actually be doing non-ministry. We might actually be doing ministry that's not pleasing to Jesus. We might actually be doing ministry that is really self-centered and all about our own glory. But Paul came to Thessalonica in much agony. Why do we see this? Well, let's read in verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul starts right out of the gate reminding them, of course, almost rhetorically, because they certainly understood and recalled and remembered what he had gone through. He didn't come there as a strong, proud, confident messenger in himself. This is really important. Paul, he says, was not coming or had not come to them, rather, in vain. That word vain is a loaded word because it literally speaks to the reality that Paul was not chasing his own imaginations in vain ambitions when he went there. He didn't, like I mentioned, look at Thessalonica and say, you know, that's a great spot to go. No, he went there because of the call of God upon his life. So Paul says, I didn't come to you in vain. I didn't come there chasing my own ambition, chasing my own imaginations. I actually came to you in great personal agony. And he says, we had already been shamefully treated at Philippi. Literally means abused. We had been abused. We had, we had come from a spot that did not treat us very kindly. Now, God did a wonderful work, and that lasted to eternity. But Paul's own personal experience was quite traumatic, to say the least. Uh, many of us would certainly have given ourselves a sabbatical, gotten some PTSD help from Philippi, had decided that, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't go back there. Maybe we need six months off. I mean, this was not the kind of guy Paul was. He just kind of got up and went forward, and that marked Paul's ministry in every capacity. He always moved forward when everything in his life screamed, go backwards. Go home, Paul. This isn't worth it, Paul. This is vain, Paul. He said, no, we didn't come to you in vain. We didn't come to you devoid of substance. We didn't come to you as frauds. 
We didn't come to you seeking our own glory. And he's going to get into all of this. But he says, you already know we had, been su- we had suffered, been shamefully treated, but yet we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. This word conflict is awesome because it speaks of the arena of battle in which Paul entered into. Paul understood something that is of, of great practical benefit to you and I in that our lives are supposed to be lived in the conflict, in the arena. Paul had in his mind's eye, I believe, the concept of really where the gladiators would fight in, in the Roman Empire, in that giant stadium that they would spill lots of blood and contest uh, in battle um, in the ancient world in Rome. And I think Paul had in view constantly the reality that God had called Paul into an arena. And this arena was both a private one and a public one. It was private in that much of Paul's suffering was internal, and that his concern for the church was great, and that the pressure and affliction in his own life was heavy, and that his own emotional turmoil was at times uh, very difficult to navigate, and that the pressure on his own body was immense. But yet in the midst of all that, he also had external conflict, Uh, As he highlights in this chapter, we'll get into that as we go. And the external conflict made Paul very aware of the fact that everything in his life, all of the sufferings that he was experiencing for the sake of Jesus, was so that he might become a living object lesson to the people he was ministering to. Paul understood that his suffering was not for his own gain. Uh, His suffering was not just something he had to put up with because, oh, this is really difficult and, I, you know, I shouldn't be treated this way and, you know, this is just unfair. And, I mean, all of those things Paul could have levied from his experience at Philippi, but he said, no, we're going to press on and all of the abuse and all of the trauma and all of the beatings that I'm going to experience and had experienced up to Thessalonica did not deter Paul in any way from realizing that this was where he belonged. And I hope that you get a sense today as I did from preparing this, that we belong in the battle. We belong in the arena. And the arena is not the arena of our own personal glory. The arena is not the arena for us to get a medal one day and say, look what we've done. The arena is the arena of public and internal private suffering for the sake of Jesus because it gains something in eternity. The arena that Paul recognized he belonged was in the middle of the conflict, not on the outside of it. And we certainly belong, as people of God, in the middle of the battle, in the thick of it, in the midst of it. I hope that the devil hasn't convinced you that you need to take a retreat from the battle. Now, now this isn't to say, in balance, that we don't take times away. We must. We certainly need rest. We're human beings. We're jars of clay. And if we don't understand that finite dimension of our ministry, we'll certainly suffer in in due course. But Paul recognized that the conflict, the arena of battle, was where he belonged. And I think in a real sense, Paul learned to love it. Paul learned to love it. And here he recognizes that he didn't come again in his own personal triumph. He didn't come as a successful, proud ministry man. Rather, the Thessalonians were not sold the gospel, they were sent the gospel. And Paul was a living embodiment of a bruised and battered man living out the mission of his king. And Paul understood that they had received the word of God like him under much pressure and pain. And the Thessalonians saw what God sent in gospel-shaped men do. They saw what gospel-sent and gospel-shaped men do and became imitators of Jesus by imitating his ambassadors, becoming in the process the model for all the believers in Asia and Europe as to who would believe the gospel. So it's a very interesting thing that develops in Thessalonica, and Ben pointed this out last week. They became a model of the churches throughout all of Europe. Thessalonica, something radical happened. They didn't just become a church. They became a model church. And they didn't become a model church accidentally. They became a model church because of the immense suffering and persecution that was ongoing throughout the entire time of its planting and continued 
thriving as a church. And Paul understood this element of the kingdom. So I want to ask us, because Paul again highlights this actually in chapter 1, when he says that the gospel came to you not only in word in verse 5 of chapter 1, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And I want to just highlight for us briefly these elements and I think ask ourselves the question, how did the gospel come to Thessalonica in this manner and how does the gospel come through us in a similar manner today? Well, I think it helps to understand a little bit about how God's kingdom works. And first, we understand that the gospel came first in power because Paul's weakness was great. The gospel came first in power because Paul's dependence was great. He came there, as I already said, broken. He's going to come other places the same way. He's going to come to Corinth almost in worse shape. He didn't come there riding a limousine pompous, you know, wearing sweet sneakers, and just, here I am, the gospel man. He came there in great dependence, suffering for the glory of God in the life of the messenger, prepares the way for the message to make a deep and lasting impact. You know, I cannot live as an enemy of the cross of Christ and at the same time preach it with power. The message and the messenger must match by the working of God's grace in a life so that, notice this, a man fits the message, not the message fitting the man. It's so easy in our day, we see a lot of messengers where they fit the message to the man, and the man becomes the model, and the man becomes the message, and the man becomes the means by which all of the things in ministry are supposed to happen. And God says, none of this is biblical. The message is to conform the man into it, not the other way around. And Paul understood this reality and embraced it in great personal pain and said, no, we didn't come to you with a message that fit our own fancy. We came to you fitting the message that we preached. We came to you embodying the message of a crucified and risen Savior because in our own body, we were being crucified. We were dying to ourselves. And the Lord saw fit, and will see fit in our lives, over a gracious and long period to mold us to fit the message. And if we resist the Lord on this measure, and we quench the spirit of God's work in our lives because we decide to be an enemy of the cross, as Philippians 3 points out, and serve our appetite over that, we will not fit the message. And in short order or long order, perhaps we will eventually become disqualified in proclaiming that message. And if we continue to proclaim that message, it will lose all power in our own lives because we no longer fit the message we preach. So Paul understood this reality, that he came in great personal weakness. His dependence was great. And if you've served the Lord for some time, the Lord will bring a myriad of circumstances into our lives that in our own logic, seem to not make a lot of sense by way of assisting the goal of ministry. It doesn't seem to, to add up. Why would the Lord allow this? Why, why in desiring to do a good thing, all the wrong things happen? The Lord would say, because I'm molding you to fit the message. I'm molding your life to fit the call that you're giving to others. And this is a profound truth and one that is, is difficult to endure in, hard to embrace at times but so necessary, so needed that our lives fit the message. Secondly, we see the gospel came to Thessalonica in the Holy Spirit, in power and in the Holy Spirit. And this is really quite obvious just from the narrative of Acts in chapter 16 that, as I already mentioned and Ben said last week, Paul came there by way of a vision. He didn't come there thinking this up. Paul couldn't cook up this stuff. He didn't just sit in his bed one day and like, yeah, 100 miles from here there's... A city of 300,000 people that was steeped in paganism, and, and I've just been beaten half to death, but I think we should go there. That's a good idea. No, God said, go there, and Paul said, yes. And that is so needed. This is not to be understated in any way, that the leading of the Holy Spirit is so essential as we serve the Lord, so pivotal, because if the Holy Spirit was not leading Paul, when he gets done with Philippi, he taps out. He's like, no way, not again. I just got beaten with rods, like viciously. Bones were broken. Skin was opened. 
bleeding profusely. And he's like, no, that was a bad idea. Let's, let's pick some other city. But no, God says go. And Paul, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, charged ahead in response to the call of God. I hope that our lives are consciously being lived under the leading of God's Spirit. If we don't have the leading of God's Spirit in our lives, we will not last. If we're not led by God's Spirit into the things God calls us to do, we will burn out. We will get weak, we will grow uh, weary, and we will give up. We will faint. But in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit, we will always be able to fall back upon the fact that I didn't put myself here, God did. And I won't get myself out of here, God will. And God will lead me through. So Paul came in great dependence. Paul came under the leading of the Holy Spirit. You can reference Acts 16, 6 through 10 for that. And then lastly, we see that Paul brought the gospel to Thessalonica in full confidence and conviction. He says plainly that we had boldness in our God in verse 2 to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Notice that the boldness came not from himself. Again, as I mentioned, Paul didn't come there writing his personality the high horse of ministry success. This boldness is not of man, but of God. For it derives its strength from God himself and makes its boast in God and is assured that God is faithful and altogether worthy of total confidence and trust. Paul would reflect on this time to his letter to second, in Second Corinthians chapter 2. If you want to briefly turn there, I think it's worth the flip to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul would reflect on his time in Macedonia in the midst of great conflict, and he would say in verse 12 that when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia, which is where he was in Thessalonica. And then he says this, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. It says, who is sufficient for these things? If we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul understood something that I don't fully understand as I preach it to you, that everywhere we go, the Lord is in front of us if we're depending on him. Jesus says in John 14, I go ahead of you to prepare a place for you. And of course, he's speaking of eternity there. But he's also speaking of what he does in our daily lives. As Jesus goes ahead of us, he prepares the way. And the problem is we don't like sometimes the way Jesus prepares. And we enter into it and we realize, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. But Paul has learned to say, thanks be to God who in Jesus always leads us in triumph. And if you study this passage, most commentators agree that Paul had in view the Roman procession of a general leading captives into Rome before Caesar, triumphantly from the heat of battle, with prisoners in tow, and there was a massive citywide procession that would happen as a result of Rome's uh, military conquests, and Paul had in view that he was a captive of the Lord Jesus, who was the general, riding on a horse, leading his army from triumph to triumph. And he was in that army. Sometimes he felt like a captive. Sometimes he felt like a soldier. But he was in that triumphal procession. Nonetheless, and he was not the general. Jesus was. And I hope we gain comfort from that as I did to remind ourselves that everywhere you are, God has called you there, gone ahead of you, so that there you might become a fragrant aroma of him everywhere. But there's no fragrance without pressure. There's no fragrance without squeezing. There's no fragrance without pain. There has to be some pressure for the Lord Jesus to emit out of us. You know, because we're, we're selfish people. And if you're like me, I like to keep Jesus all to myself. I like to get as much of him and then bottle it up and store it for the, a rainy day. 
And I've lived my Christian life at times in that way, and it really stinks because Jesus doesn't keep in a bottle. He's meant to be let out. And the only way that will happen in my selfish heart is if the Lord breaks my selfish heart and causes Jesus to come out. Now, oftentimes in the breaking, something other than Jesus comes out, and God will work on us and refine us. But the goal is that we would become, everywhere we go, a fragrant aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. It does not mean that ministry success is guaranteed. Paul says, to some we're death to death, to some we're life to life. Some it's beautiful, others it stinks. Some of you have experienced both of those things. Some people think your life stinks. They're like, this Jesus who you serve, he ain't a good deal. Others are like, where has he been all my life? And in all of our lives, we're going to have different experiences with this. But ultimately, who is sufficient for all of these things? Paul says it's the Lord. But we're not like so many peddlers of the word of God. Whereas he went into each city, there was everybody selling their religion. Everybody was selling their God. Everybody was selling their version of spirituality. Paul says we're not like them. We have a real God. We have a living God who we serve. And we speak sincerely because of it. So everywhere Paul went, he was a fragrance of Christ. And we are called to be the same. Back in Thessalonians, Paul says, now the second characteristic of his ministry is not only his agony, but his appeal. Paul is making an appeal to them. He says in verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So Paul makes it real plain. He says, we didn't come to you, of course, in our own power, and we didn't come to you with our own appeal. You know, the Thessalonians... um, the Jewish religious leaders of Thessalonica, rather, uh, were, were trying to poison the minds of the people that had both come to faith and had not come to faith in saying that Paul was just another peddler. He was just another salesman. He was just another, you know, man with a God that was a gimmick and that it was all fraudulent and that they need not listen to this talk of a, of a, of a Messiah and of a King Jesus and, and all of this. And, and they were just trying to rip his ministry to shreds. And Paul says, you know, we didn't come to you with an appeal that sprang out of the own imaginations of our heart or from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. In other words, we had no sales pitch. We had no bait and switch. We had no uh, motivation in our heart that was bent uh, in any kind of way, either morally or ethically or spiritually. Our motivation was pure. It was without error, meaning it was, it was precise theologically. It wasn't mixed up. It wasn't uh, wrong. And secondly, it wasn't impure. You know, sometimes uh, <laughs> people can say, yeah, we're, we're, we're appealing to people. And, and you ask them who they're appealing to. And, you know, he's a 21-year-old guy, and he's appealing to a bunch of college girls all the time. And he's like, yeah, we're making our appeal to them. We're preaching the gospel. And no, you're not. You're not preaching the gospel. Go preach to a 21-year-old guy not a 21-year-old girl. I'm not saying you can't reach a woman, but be careful where the spring is leading you. Be careful who you're making your appeal to. Sometimes we can deceive ourselves and we only appeal to a certain kind of person. We only appeal to what appeals to us. And that's dangerous. Paul says we didn't appeal to that which appealed to us. We appealed to that which God was appealing to. So we have to figure out what God is appealing to and appeal to that. If we appeal to people based on what appeals to us, we're just going to create a social club. We're just going to create people like us that love us because we love ourselves. Paul says that's not us. Secondly, we see that Paul came to them, of course, not seeking to win friends and influence people. He came to win the lost and please the Lord, but he also had an approval. So Paul's approval is key because he says there in verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Awesome thing here, awesome statement. Just as we've been approved by God, Paul understood something of his approval. 
God was the one who examined Paul's heart. God was the one who looked inside Paul and judged his motivations. And I think it would be helpful to, in a broad sense, summarize Paul's approval process in a few different ways because it translates to you and I today. Paul was an approved man. This word approval, first of all, let's qualify it. It speaks to literally put trust in because you've been proven faithful. Just quite literally, simply put there. Uh, in other words, uh, in, in the staggering element of it is not so much uh, in anything else but the fact that God looked at Paul and found him faithful. Now, I don't know about you, but it's quite alarming that God chooses to work through humans. It's quite alarming because we really do a good job of messing things up. And we're really not always that helpful. And we're really not always that nice. And we're really not always that good. And actually, point of fact, we're not good at all. And Jesus is our goodness. And yet God, since the beginning of time, has, oh, been so delighted to work with humans and to work in humans. He doesn't do it because of anything in us. He does it because of all that he is. Because he is so good and so kind and so gracious that if we just understood how much God was kind and gracious and good, we would stop putting so many excuses in his way. Because we recognize that the Lord just delights by grace to use his people. Paul understood that he'd been approved by God. But how did this approval process happen? Well, firstly, I think Paul was a forgiven and justified man. Paul was a forgiven and justified man. And he highlights this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I think it's just an amazing segment of Scripture that he writes to Timothy, describing himself, I think reminding Timothy that, hey, you, know, you don't have my history. You can do this, man. And he says, I thank him who has given me strength in verse 12 of 1 Timothy. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly, he says, I was a blasphemer persecutor, an insolent opponent. That's a good uh, list there. He says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He says, and this should be underlined in your Bible, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What an amazing statement. This is not false humility. This is the man understanding who he was, who he is, and that there is one great truth that covered his entire existence, that Jesus Christ had come into the world to save such men as him. And he was not by any stretch of the imagination, a good man. So while he was supremely religious, he certainly was. He had kept the law to the best of what he thought he could. And uh, his pedigree is listed in Philippians 3 there, his heritage, all of his background, all of his achievements. And yet, at the end of it all, he says, it's just rubbish, just a pile of dung. Because ultimately, I was a chief sinner. I was top ranking in the sin category. I had all the medals. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, adding that, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a fitting way to close that out. Paul understood that his approval process was first and foremost an act of God's sovereign grace. Paul didn't approve himself. He was approved by God, and he understood that this great mysterious mercy was for the reason that Jesus Christ might display the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his patience. So why did God choose you for that reason? He chose you for that reason. He chose me for that reason. Because I'm a chief sinner. You're a chief sinner. You are the worst sinner that you should know. And if you're not the worst sinner that you should know yet, God will make that plain to you. And he will remind you that, yeah, you are the foremost, but I'm also greater than that. 
Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Paul was a forgiven man and a justified man. Paul was also a spirit-filled man. In 2 Corinthians, he reminds us also of the requirements of uh, being made adequate ministers of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he speaks to the Corinthians, again, sort of defending his ministry, he says, such, in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, which is not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul understood that they were ministers of the Spirit, And to be a minister of the Spirit of God certainly must require you to be filled with the Spirit of God. And if you're not filled with the Spirit of God, you don't belong to Him. Paul says that if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. But as people of God, He has filled us. He says in Romans 5 that Holy Spirit has poured out into our hearts the love of God. And we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the marks of not only being a believer but of being fit to serve under the new covenant is that you would be spirit-filled, that you would be being led and molded and guided by the Holy Spirit in your life, that you would uh, have that down payment of the surety of your ultimate redemption through the Spirit, Ephesians says. So Paul was not only a forgiven and justified man, but he was a spirit-filled man. You remember in the book of Acts when they were seeking to qualify deacons, one of the requirements was that they were spirit-filled men. A man of good reputation, full of the Spirit. It's so important that we are Spirit-filled. Now, of course, we're not going to go off on some charismatic tangent about the different nuances of whether you're Spirit-filled, baptized by the Spirit, all of those things. We'll leave that alone. Ultimately, if Jesus has your heart, He has poured out into you the Spirit. And you have all the Spirit of God that you need. The issue is that the Spirit of God doesn't always have all of us. And as we surrender more and more into our lives that the Spirit might have the freedom to do what the Spirit of God wants to do, we don't get more of the Spirit. God gets more of us. And in that measure, I believe, we become people that are more and more under the control and leading of God's Spirit. And I think it's a beautiful thing, something we should be earnest for. You should be earnest in your life to always be being filled with the Spirit, as Ephesians 5 says. Lastly, Paul was proven a faithful man. This is no small thing. Paul was not just a forgiven and justified man, as glorious as that is. Paul wasn't only a Spirit-filled man. He was a proven and a faithful man. 1 Corinthians 4.2 tells us uh, succinctly when Paul describes the, the ministry of being a steward of the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, He says, this is how, or really verse 1 and 2, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That they be found faithful. Now, in an interesting way, this word faithful means, quite literally, to be full of faith. But it also goes both ways. It means that the individual is full of faith, and the God who supplied that faith to the individual is, is fully assured in the individual because he put faith there. So the God who gives is assured that the one with the faith is going to steward that faith well in the sight of God as well as the one with the faith as a gift of God is cognizant of the fact that in order to steward well, I need to be full of faith. Hopefully that made sense. That You have this duality there. But ultimately God says of Paul's life that we are required to be faithful. So Paul was found faithful. And then lastly, we see in Colossians chapter 1 that I'll just read to you. It's a glorious, I was chuckling, Ben, when you sent that this morning. Because in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I fill up, or am filling up, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. What an amazing thing. Paul understood that this ministry was not something he picked out of the litter of job occupations. He didn't decide one day that ministering made sense for his 401k. It certainly doesn't for most of us. Uh, but ministry was a holy stewardship. It was a gift of grace of the highest degree through which only a faithful man or woman could properly steward and dispense under the leading of God's Spirit and the grace of God. And in, the, in this all, you will still need immense toil, an immense work, an immense struggle. And you will need all the energy that God supplies for us to faithfully discharge this duty. And Paul understood this well. So Paul's approval process was multifaceted, but it's the same approval process that you and I have. Paul wasn't, as is sometimes thought, a super Christian. He certainly was a mighty man of God, uh, but he was not anything different than us, the same nature as us. And yet, like all men and women of God, he was approved of the Lord. I think, ultimately, if we settle for only pursuing a qualification of position in God's service, we will fail to love the pursuit of conforming to the person of Christ in our daily lives. And we are prone to corrupt the call of God on our lives if we say, well, this is the position and calling God has put me in, and if I reach that, well, then I can sort of settle there, and I'll fulfill all that God has for me. But in really reality, God is not pleased with that because what he's actually seeking to fulfill is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. And if we're not ever pressing on to the conformity of our whole being into the image of Jesus, and we're just simply seeking to be qualified for a role in the church, as good as that is, we will miss the mark. We will miss the point. We will eventually corrupt the ministry because we will, as all humans do, lower the bar to suit our own version or standard of whatever that job is. We'll say, well, this is, you know, I'm called to be a pastor, so we'll, we'll qualify ourselves for that role, and then we'll just we'll stay there. And you certainly need to be qualified for that role, but ultimately the qualification is that you'd be like Jesus. And if we're not ever pressing in every year that goes by of our lives, it's quite a, quite a heart check was for me to look at my life and say, well, am I more like Jesus than I was last year? Am I more like Jesus than I was five years ago? Because we can get stuck in the Christian life. We can sort of plateau. when We, we reach this level, and I've certainly been there, uh, and the Lord is gracious to not leave me there. We can sort of plateau and say, okay, you know, this is a comfy spot. The Lord says, no, you're not like Jesus. We need to have that as our pursuit, more like Jesus year by year by the grace of God. We move on now to Paul's ambition. From Paul's approval to Paul's ambition back in Thessalonians, he says, not only was he approved of God, but we speak, he says, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And he outlines that there as we read. Not with a pretext for greed, not seeking glory from people. This is a hard-hitting reality, one that strikes me in the gut, who was one prone to please man, one prone to be a yes man. God has been working on me for years in that category. And Paul here just crucifies it right in the text. He says, no, we're not here to please man. Like, at all, simply put. He's like, we're just not here for man. He says, we're here to please God, who tests our hearts. So how does one do that? Well, he says, we ought to do away with all the methods and mechanics of man-pleasing and learn to cultivate a singular ambition to please the Lord Jesus and honor him in all we say and do. Only in this singular ambition will we be proven fit instruments for the word of God to sound forth from us with clarity courage, and purity. Paul says this numerous times in his letters in Galatians 1.10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? He says, am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he pits the two right against each other. He says one is going to serve the other. You can't have both. You can't be a man pleaser and a servant of God. You can't please God and please man. And he makes this really plain. And we need to make it plain in our lives. We need to be resolute about this reality that we cannot be a slave of Jesus and please man at the same time. We must choose. This hit me pretty hard. Whenever a man, wherever a man gets his approval, that is where he will seek to keep it. Wherever we get our approval, wherever we get our affirmation, wherever we get our source of identity, we will guard that jealously. If it's from God, then we will seek to stay approved in the sight of God. But if it's from man, we will seek to please man in all that we do. It's just really cut and dry. Paul says we didn't come here seeking to please man. We're here to please the Lord at great cost to our own well-being. People hate us or they love us. It's one or the other. And I'm not saying you should walk around with a chip on your shoulder and be a jerk and just walk around and be like, I'm not, I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what people say. I mean, you know, you hold those things with a loose tether. Those things do matter to some degree. If 100 people say you're nasty, you probably are. But if one out of 100 people say you're nasty, keep going. And this is kind of the nature of Paul's ministry. He says, you know, <laughs> my own, oh, gosh, sorry. My own commendation is not the 50 people that hate my guts. It's you. It's a church. And it's just so necessary we have that balance. So we have Paul's affection. Excuse me, I'm jumping ahead. So the man-pleasing, you know, Paul's ambition in his ministry was to renounce seeking glory from man. This is, this is so key, of course, in not being a man-pleaser because what we really want from man-pleasing is our own approval. We want glory from other people. We want everybody else to tell us we're okay. And I don't know about you, but we're all sort of insecure to some degree. We all want people to tell us we're okay. We all want people to affirm us. Paul says we didn't seek glory from people, whether from you or from others though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul says we have certain privileges, rights, abilities even. I mean, if, if you have, as a servant of the Lord, you have a capacity to abuse the power God's given you. Well, we should understand that. It's dangerous to abuse the rights of any position God gives you and calls you to. And you see that all the time in the church. There's an abuse of power, an abuse of people, an abuse of money and means and all kinds of things. Paul says, we didn't do that. We didn't seek it from people. Now, understand that Paul didn't seek it. He certainly got it. And what he did with that was pivotal, and we'll look at that in a moment. But Paul did not seek it from people. That was not his source root. But when he did get glory, we're reminded in the book of Acts when him and Barnabas on their first missionary journey went to Lystra and they healed a man that was crippled and uh, the city just like lost their minds and they were like, this is Zeus and Mercury and we're going to worship them and the priest of Zeus and Mercury came out and we're going to you know, like slaughter a calf in their honor and you know, this, the gods have come down among us as men, uh, very much like you know, Greek mythology would uh, believe. And Paul and Barnabas, they, they tear their clothes like good Jewish men. This, this is blasphemy. We're not, we're just the same nature as you. We got skin, we got bones, we bleed, we break, we feel. We're not God. And he says, he says that all he could do, him and Barnabas, to restrain the glory. All he could do to restrain the glory. And there'll be moments in our lives when we serve Jesus where all we can do is restrain the glory. But we better restrain it. Because if we don't restrain it, God will discipline us severely. God will alone have the glory. And if we let the glory come to us and we don't resist it, and we love it, and we eat it up, and it goes to our head, it will disqualify us. It will undoubtedly disqualify us. And many of the tragic falls in evangelicalism among high-profile people, celebrity preachers, can obviously and almost unequivocally be traced to the reception of glory. It's, it's glory hunger, which we're all prone to. I want glory just as bad as you. And God says, crucify it. Because you can't have me and have glory. I alone deserve the glory. If you have any doubt about who deserves the glory, I don't know that we have time to read it. Well, I'll read a little bit of it. I can't help myself. 
Revelation chapter 4. This is just too good not to read. Revelation chapter 4. It says in verse 8, this is a scene of heaven. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and is, excuse me, and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I mean, just in chapter 5, you could read on, it gets better. Just shouting in profuse language to describe the only one who is worthy is Jesus. It's God. And of course, we know this. We're not surprised by this. But we are surprised when glory hunger seeks in, sneaks in, and we find ourselves swelling and loving the praises of men. God says it must be crucified. And then Paul describes from not only his approval but his ambition. Paul gets into his affection. I love this. Because glory hunger will turn your affection away from the right affections. Paul says this is proof that we weren't seeking glory because of our affections being bent in the right direction. What were his affections bent to? He says in verse 7, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And we'll move along a little quicker here. But he says Paul's affection was simply that he went to Thessalonica not looking to be served, but to serve. He was not only ready to preach the gospel and to give them the message, but he was ready to give them his own life. It's a whole different level. It's one thing to preach the, the gospel, certainly. It's another thing to give your life for the gospel and the lives of others. That's the whole reason, uh, or one of the reasons, I should say, that we must work hard at cultivating a culture in our churches of love and affection. We must be bent towards each other. And that does not just happen accidentally. How does that happen? How do we cultivate a healthy affection for God and each other? How does this come about? I want to just point out quickly a few ways, and Paul articulates this as we climb down to the rest of this chapter here and try to move a little quicker. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to always, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins." He says, but wrath has come upon them at last. What a statement. So Paul, first of all, how do we cultivate a proper affection? We have to have a proper activity. First of all, we have to have a labor of love. There has to be proclamation with perspiration, to put it in that way. We have to labor at love because love is a work of labor. Love is a choice, biblical love, agape love. Now, I can have a certain amount of affinity and affection for any of you, just naturally. A lot of you are very lovable people. Uh, saying that just on my own. I mean, not super hard to love you. It's super hard, though, to give all of my life to you. It's super hard to proclaim uh, 
and then also perspire in a way that is eternal. It's hard to labor at love, but all real love that lasts has an immense amount of labor attached to it. The work at our marriage, work at our relationships, they don't just happen accidentally. We have to pursue them. There has to be a real desire to stir this up. There has to be an intense longing developed for each other. And Paul did this in reality by making it clear to them that he didn't come to take from them, but to impart to them. He didn't come there to burden them, but to bless them. And if I come to church and my whole operation with coming into the assembly of God's people and having community with God's people is to simply take and to simply receive and to simply be fed and and to simply be blessed, then what happens, even unintentionally, is I just simply become a burden. And I don't actually transmit life to you. I don't actually transmit hope to you. I don't actually transmit encouragement to you. I'm simply coming to be fed and go on my merry way with the rest of my life. I have no intention of actually sharing my life with you. I have no intention of actually being involved in your day-to-day existence. I just want to come and go. And Paul says, no, this isn't how we came to you. He didn't even know these people. And he came to them broken and bleeding, saying, I come to bless, not to burden. I come not to take, but to impart. I come to be a life giver, not a life taker. And we need that kind of culture. We need that kind of heart. We need that kind of affection for each other. And this isn't going to happen if we don't put the work in. And by the power of God, he will supply what is needed. But we have to learn to love. We have to learn to cultivate a genuine, not slapstick, cheap affection for each other as saints. And if I'm only seeking to receive and to be loved and to be fed, there will always be an excuse and always be a reason why the church has failed me. And that needs to go. That is not maturity. My entire focus will be self-oriented and inward. Paul came there and poured out his life for their sakes. A true work in labor of love doesn't demand its rights, but gives up its rights for the well-being of another. Jesus said, if no, greater love is no man than this, that he what? Lay down his life for his friends. So this is the example in closing that Paul wanted to impart to them in a pagan culture of false religions that did exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Paul acted in a manner that, as he mentioned, was not only nurturing like a mother, but also like a father. He exhorted, he encouraged, and he charged. And this is sort of the, 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 the nuances of what it means to cultivate this affection as we wrap this up. Is we need to be people that call each other near. That's what exhort means, to bring close, to bring alongside, to uh, get them doing life with you so that you can actually speak into their life. Otherwise, what right do you have to speak to them? To earn the right to be heard by calling each other near. And and then, of course, encouraging, which is to comfort, and then to charge, to bear witness to the truth, even unto death. And then lastly, Paul was thankful for the word working in their midst. He wasn't overjoyed that they merely received him. A hireling would be content with those wages. A minister of the gospel is only satisfied when the people receive the word of God as what it is, the word of God, not the word of man. And they submit to that word and allow it to work in their lives. And then very lastly, and please turn to 2 Corinthians 4. We'll close there. As you turn there, Paul had an anticipation. The last thing Paul had was an anticipation Three things quickly. Paul anticipated the coming of the Lord. Paul anticipated that separation was not final, whether in life or death. And Paul awaited the opportunity to present these believers his joy and crown before the Lord unashamed. As you turn to 2 Corinthians 4, I just want to read this to you, and we'll close and pray. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says in verse 7, I think it encapsulates well what we've talked about this morning. It says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, he says, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Lastly, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer man or outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father God, you are a good God. You are a good master. You are a good Lord. And all we are is your children, your servants, your stewards of these great mysteries. We want to be people that in our bodies experience the death of Jesus, that through our bodies the life of Jesus can be manifested. Father, we're not good at these things. We're not sufficient for these things. Only you make us so. We are in great dependence on you. We need you, Father, to take these truths of the gospel, these truths of true ministry, and make them one with us. Help our lives to fit the message. Let us not pervert it to fit ourselves. And we commit this work unto Jesus for the rest of our days. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.